Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 361, W.A. Poet. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, members are listening to a Shop Talk episode where Dr. Z and I discuss religious art and how a lot of the artwork during this period carried a heavy subtext of talking. And you can listen to that episode and all the other members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to David, Brendan, and Marissa for signing up already. King Edward came to England with a political migraine. Many of his own nobles, who were the very people who he relied upon for the exercise of his power, had actually been involved in the murder of his brother, Alfred. And these were powerful figures in their own right, and many of them would have had more influence and knowledge in the country than Edward did, having been in court this whole time. So whatever desire for revenge Edward might have had would have had to have been balanced carefully with this reality, or else he could find himself in the middle of a civil war. Now the custom in England, when a king ascends to the throne, was for the powerful lords to give the new king gifts. And in response to this display of loyalty, the king was then expected to provide the lord with honors, titles, maybe estates, and also a promise of favorable treatment. Essentially, it was a system of open mutual bribery. And when Edward came to the throne, the lords used this custom to their advantage and to get themselves out of hot water. You'll remember that Earl Godwin, for example, gave the king a magnificent ship tricked out with fully armed bros. It was actually the largest and most extravagant gift that the king received, which makes sense as it was Earl Godwin who had a big hand in Alfred's death. And Godwin's gamble appears to have played off because he wasn't punished by the king. And that meant that Edward was the kind of king you could pay off. But just because Godwin was doing okay didn't mean that everyone was forgiven. Edward did appear to exact his revenge on certain people, Albeit, they were people with much less power, much less wealth, and in many cases, women. Most notably was Edward's own mother, Queen Emma, who was cast out of court and stripped of her properties in 1043, less than a year after Edward took the throne. And there are plenty of personal reasons why Edward might have wanted his mother out of court, and why he might have been holding a grudge against her. But beyond that, there are also plenty of rumors regarding the various ways that she'd been disloyal to Edward both before and after he ascended to the throne. But there's also the fact that Emma's ouster would have personally benefited many of the members of the king's inner council. With her removal, Godwin of Wessex, Leofric of Mercia, and Seward of Northumbria would have had a lot more influence over the king. Because don't forget that Edward's years in exile meant that his knowledge of English structures of power were limited. In these early years, he would have needed every step to be guided. So with Emma gone, Earl Seward, Earl Leofrich, and Earl Godwin were now indispensable. And when you're indispensable, you tend to get what you want. Which made Edward's coronation a very interesting event. According to the Vita Edwardi, Edward was crowned in 1043, about one year after he took the throne, and shortly after, Emma was cast out of court. And among the attendees was Godwin's nephew, Swain Estrithson, the rebel king of Denmark. 
And Swain wasn't there just to see what was going on. He would have been there for a political purpose. Specifically, he would have wanted Edward's support in his war against King Magnus of Norway. So assuming that the Vida is correct, it would mean that by the time that Edward was formally crowned as king, his court was already being visited by at least two foreign noblemen who were looking to pull England into their wars. Malcolm Bighead, who was there at the behest of Earl Seward, and King Swain, who was there likely at the behest of Earl Godwin. We're also told that Edward's coronation was attended by other foreign princes, as well as ambassadors, and they all would have certainly been pursuing their own diplomatic objectives. And this was actually likely a familiar scenario for the new king. Edward had spent most of his life in exile, living at the largesse of Norman noblemen, and they didn't do that out of kindness. The nobles gave him a place to live because they were looking to gain something from him, either immediately or at some point in the future. So for Edward, dealing with all these people looking to use him, it was probably just another day at the office. But speaking of those Normans, where were they? Edward was functionally in debt to large portions of France, and now he was throwing a huge party where the powerful people of Europe would be rubbing elbows. So surely that was something that the Norman nobles would have been interested in. But fascinatingly, the Vida doesn't mention their presence at the coronation nor does it explain why they appear to have been snubbed. But if I had to hazard a guess, I'd say that it's possible that Edward wasn't all that keen on inviting his debtors to visit. Those bills were coming due, and paying them was going to be difficult, especially since the new king had a tenuous grip on power at this point. Edward was still in a very delicate position because he was surrounded by threats to his rule, not just within his kingdom, but also from without. King Magnus of Norway still thought the country belonged to him, thanks to that tontine he had with Harthacanute just a few short years ago. Edward's own mother appears to have felt the country belonged in other hands as well. And the fact of the matter is that England had been in a state of war more often than not, and Europe at this point wasn't exactly placid. So this means that the coronation was an important affair, because Edward needed to ensure that England wouldn't be a target for invasion. So all these treaties and gifts and other diplomatic ties would have been of extreme importance, and the king and his council would have been busy working on them throughout the coronation festivities. And gifts would have been going in both directions. Edward would have granted things to powerful attendees because, as is the case with gifts, this practice would help establish bonds of loyalty and honor. But that being said, for the more serious political attendees, simple gifts were likely not enough. And there's a surviving account from Swain himself. And based on what he had to say, it's clear that his presence in England's court was anything but benign. Swain thought that he had a legitimate claim to the throne. And he was actually surprised that upon Hartha Canute's death, it passed to Edward and not himself. Edward had barely started to learn the names of the members of court, and already the wolves were circling. Also, according to Swain's account, Edward struck a treaty in which he declared that Swain would be his heir, even if Edward had any sons. Now, this is coming from Swain, so it's unclear whether or not this actually did happen. But if it's a lie, it tells us that Swain was clearly trying to angle himself for the throne. 
And if it's true, then it also tells us that Edward was desperately trying to avoid a war at his own coronation. Furthermore, if Swain is telling the truth, it also means that Edward did manage to find a diplomatic solution, but it was one that was even worse than Harthacanute's deal with King Magnus. So Scandinavia continued to be a serious threat for the kings of England. And whatever the deal was actually struck, the fact was that Edward had pulled it off. Swain left in peace. But speaking of Scandinavia, things up there were getting interesting. You might remember that old King Olaf of Norway had a younger brother named Harold. And he'd actually fought on behalf of his brother. But after the failed battle of Stiklestad, Harold fled into exile. And actually, he'd been pretty busy during his time abroad. He spent some time serving as a mercenary under Prince Yaroslav of Novograd, and he was actually really good at it, which you would expect. You can't be a slouch while serving underneath Yaroslav the Wise. So Harold was rising in the ranks, but he was also a young man. And he had bigger desires for his life than simply serving as a mercenary. And among them, it seems, was the desire to be with a princess. Specifically, he wanted to be with Yaroslav's daughter, Princess Elizabeth. Harold had it bad for this princess. Unfortunately, landless exiled Merc might be the kind of bad boy that you bring out to town, but it's not exactly who you bring home to meet dad, especially when dad is the grand prince. So Elizabeth shot poor Harold down. And Harold coped with this just like you imagine he would. He wrote sad poetry. Poetry that included lines like, Yet the goddess in Gardarik will not accept my gold rings. Which, I assume, is the Old Norse equivalent of that one song sung by the Goo Goo Dolls. But heartbreak is part of growing up, even in the Middle Ages. And moping around in the barracks after getting shot down by the boss's daughter isn't exactly a good look. So Harold eventually moved on. He headed down to Constantinople, where he joined the Varangian Guard the elite military force that served the Byzantine emperor. And it turns out, he was good at it. Very good. Before long, Harold became the commander. And he went on to spend about a decade fighting on behalf of the imperial family in their various conflicts. Until finally, it came time for him to leave. And it was super clear that he needed to go. Because suddenly, he found himself in prison. Harold had somehow found himself caught up in the political intrigue between Emperor Michael V and Empress Zoe, who wasn't his wife, nor any blood relative, but was actually his adopted mother, because Byzantine politics are Byzantine. But anyway, co-rule wasn't going very well for Zoe and Michael, and Zoe was starting to want Michael out of there. And the Varangian Guard was very much involved in imperial politics, so naturally, an impending civil war within the imperial family was something that was going to carry a lot of risks for the members of the guard, including Harold. But that's the normal part of the story. And Harold was anything but normal. We have several accounts for why Harold was imprisoned and how he escaped. Unfortunately, none of them agree. Some accounts claim that it was courtly intrigue and fears of disloyalty. Others accuse him of financial crimes. Saxo claims the commander committed murder. But there are others. Others that claim that Harold was, well, he was just too damn sexy to walk free. 
William of Malmesbury tells us that while serving in the Varangian Guard, Harold had seduced a noblewoman. And when the affair was discovered, he was arrested. But considering the offense, Harold wasn't just left in prison to contemplate whether that booty call was worth it. No, he was thrown to the lions. Literally. As in, his sentence was that he was going to get eaten by a damn lion. However, once in the pit, Harold managed to grasp the lion around the neck and strangle it to death. With his bare hands. And naturally, everyone was so impressed, they just let Harold go. But of course, it wouldn't just be William of Malmesbury who's writing about this guy. A man like that would also inspire sagas. And it's in the sagas where this story gets really good. Apparently, Harold, who spent a lot of his time carrying out dangerous tasks for the Empire, was also hot. Really hot. Just, like, damn. And people were taking note. So Harold, being an enterprising young man, looked to capitalize on this. And he asked to marry a member of the Imperial family. A woman named Maria, who was either the granddaughter or the niece of the Empress. But there was a problem. Harold was hot as hell, and Empress Zoe was looking to break off a piece of that for herself. So she refused to grant the request. She wasn't going to get cock-blocked by her granddaughter. But of course, Empress Zoe wasn't just looking to get close to the commander of the guard, because that would be too simple. She was also plotting the death of Emperor Michael V. Yikes. And then suddenly, and I'm sure completely coincidentally, Emperor Michael V had the object of Zoe's affection arrested for defrauding the Emperor of a substantial amount of wealth, and also for seducing a member of the Imperial family. And in this version, Harold wasn't able to escape until a revolt kicked off against Michael V, and it's claimed that Harold and his Varangians were the ones who blinded Emperor Michael V during the conflict. And while the sagas are notoriously unreliable, and Malmesbury here probably isn't that much better in this circumstance, you can't help but love a story where Harold is a man who puts lions in headlocks and who is so damn sexy that he sparked a civil war that led to the downfall of Emperor Michael V. And of course, there's every possibility that Harold's washboard abs and chiseled jawline had nothing to do with the war, and there were no lions involved in his escape, and this was all typical Byzantine intrigue which would be very sad. But, however this went down, after about a decade of service, Harold was done with Constantinople. And so he headed back to the Kievan Rus. And once there, he began to attract followers for a future campaign. Which was awful, awful news for King Magnus of Norway. And that might surprise you, given that Magnus was Harold's nephew. You might think that Magnus would be pleased that his sexy lion-wrestling uncle was back in the area, especially given that he could use some backup as the rebel king Swain Estrithson was breathing down his neck. But there was just one small problem. Magnus was the illegitimate son of King Olaf, which meant that Uncle Harold actually had a better claim to the throne. He was also an experienced warrior, a genius military talent, and a genuinely good poet. Also, he was clearly hot as hell and people loved that about him. So King Magnus was in trouble. There was also the matter of the Danish rebellion under King Swain, which had already acquired the support of the Swedes, not to mention large portions of Denmark, and now it seemed that Swain had acquired some new English friends. So Magnus had his hands full. 
And meanwhile, Harold wasn't just attracting fighters while he was with the Kievan Rus. There's also Princess Elizabeth. Harold's time in Constantinople had certainly improved his sword work, but it had also improved his poetry. When Harold wasn't leading men into battle, choking out lions or quenching imperial thirsts, he'd been composing poems, including love poems. And by this point in his life, on top of everything else, he'd become an impressive scald. And his love poetry to the princess, a decade after his first proposal, got him the yes that he was looking for. Though the lion strangling, fame, and wealth probably didn't hurt either. And so, Harold married Elizabeth, the daughter of the Grand Prince of Kiev. And with that marriage, he gained yet another powerful ally. And so, in 1044, Harold returned to Sweden as a wealthy son-in-law to one of the major figures in Europe. He was an experienced warrior, having spent 14 years as an elite mercenary in Russia and Byzantium. And he was now leading an armed company. As such, individuals of a certain disposition began to join his company. Because this guy was clearly going places. And for King Magnus, that must have been terrifying. Meanwhile, back in England, the legend of St. Mildred tells us that Edward was starting to feel pretty guilty about how he handled things with his mum. Edward had booted his mother out of court and seized her properties for trying to prevent him from becoming king, and then conspiring to have the throne go to a foreign king, and even allegedly conspiring to overthrow his rule and replace him after he'd taken the throne. So, not exactly a minor thing. And it's not like she'd been awesome to him beforehand, either. But... Even though what we're talking about here is treason, and exile, outlawry, or even executions for crimes of that sort aren't uncommon, Edward didn't do any of that. All in all, Edward treated his mother with an incredibly light touch, but he still felt guilty. And in 1044, we're told that he restored his mother to her former dignity and begged for her forgiveness. Then he immediately turned on those who accused her. Emma's enemies became Edward's enemies, and he turned on them suddenly. And at the same time, he restored many of Emma's friends to their previous wealth and power. And if you've listened to our most recent shop talk, you know that Z and I have some suspicions regarding Emma, Edward, and a certain personality disorder that might have underpinned their otherwise baffling behavior. And this dramatic reversal feels like yet more evidence towards that hypothesis. And then there's the issue of the marriage. Marriages were usually arranged by family members during this period. And yet the marriage arrangements for Edward and Edith began immediately after Emma was chucked out of power. And looking at the timelines, Emma wasn't restored until the marriage was already likely planned and settled. Which certainly would be one way to get around a controlling and enmeshed parent. Unfortunately, all of this is guesswork because we don't have a psychological evaluation. But I wonder if this dysfunctional relationship with his mother is why Edward always found himself so easily to be turned around and why he so quickly switched from condemnation of his mother to supporting her. There's an undeniable weakness in Edward's actions, which gives the sense, even when reading them a thousand years later, that Edward lacked a clear sense of self or a set of guiding values. Instead, he appears to have been blown around by the needs and demands of others. And this pattern, along with the splitting that we're seeing, 
is recognized today as one of the traits often seen in individuals who were raised by narcissistic parents. So I wonder what was happening in that family. I also wonder if his family background might have prevented him from seeing the enemies in his midst. Because while Earl Godwin had a reputation for being likable and popular, he was obviously playing his own game and clearly had his own goals. And don't forget Godwin's alleged role in the death of Edward's brother. There was bad blood between these families. Furthermore, it's not like Godwin came from a good family as far as the House of Wessex was concerned. Godwin's father had actually been stripped of office by Edward's father. And when that happened, he responded by becoming a pirate. You'd expect these two men to be engaged in a lifelong blood feud. And yet somehow, while Emma was gone, Godwin convinced King Edward to marry his daughter, Edith. And on January 23rd of 1045, he did. Now, the Chronicle doesn't give us details on the marriage because these were rather typical affairs. And so for the scribes, they didn't really merit mention. And we don't have diary entries about this or firsthand accounts regarding the union or how it was arranged. But given the nature of the people involved and the culture of the time, this was a political marriage. It wasn't a love match. The king was marrying the daughter of his most powerful elderman, and he was doing it for political reasons, either to keep Godwin happy or because Edward had been convinced by Godwin that this made good sense for him. Whatever the case, it seems like Godwin was all too aware of the situation that he was in and he and his family immediately began to profit from the arrangement. Godwin's two elder sons, Swain and Harold, were made earls in their own right, which increased the holdings of the Godwin family immensely. But interestingly, at about the same time, Edward also began to appoint Normans to positions of power, and these nobles would have been loyal to him. So I wonder if Edward was realizing how dangerous it was to be so reliant on Godwin, and was attempting to blunt his growing power. Something else that makes me think that he might have been trying to blunt Godwin's power has to do with what was happening in Edward's bed. Specifically, nothing. Now, as I mentioned, we don't have contemporary accounts about this marriage to Edith, and so we're stuck with the accounts of later writers like William of Malmesbury and Osbert of Clare. And that's a big problem for us, because writers like Osbert were less interested in fact and way more interested in making the case that Edward should be canonized into a saint. And it's from Osbert that we're told that Edward made it very clear that he wanted to be a virgin for his entire life. And that should give everybody pause. Given the purpose of royal weddings, a declaration of that sort would have been front page news for the Chronicle and for every other contemporary account as well. And yet there's no contemporary account stating that there is a public declaration by Edward of lifelong celibacy. Instead, what we have is Osbert, after the fact, framing Edward's childlessness as a religious act. And he's doing it in a document intended to promote his canonization. And it worked. Edward is known as St. Edward the Confessor, which is actually a fairly impressive feat considering that he didn't have a lot of miracles and he wasn't martyred. So, the question remains, was the real Edward super saintly and celibate? Well, here's the thing. There is no way that Osbert would have known what the king hoped for or didn't hope for in his marriage bed. And I can't stress this enough. If this was something that was known about Edward, people would have been writing about it at the time. It would have been super weird, and it also would have carried massive implications for the future of the crown. 
if Edward was on a religious freeze-out, it would have been mentioned. But at the same time, we are left with the inescapable fact that Edward didn't have any children with Edith. So why? Well, there are several possible reasons that don't require a declaration of saintly virginity that isn't talked about for a hundred years or more. For example, there's always the possibility that the couple were, for whatever reason, infertile. This is a common fact for couples today, and in an era before antibiotics and other medical interventions, it would have been much more common. There's also the possibility that Edward and Edith weren't having sex for perfectly unsaintly reasons. I mean, it's not like Edward had a great childhood, and many times people with bad childhoods worry that they won't be good parents. And actually, many times people who have had overburdensome parents find the idea of parenthood, which carries its own burdens, to be too much to even contemplate. So that might be one reason. There's also the possibility that Edward just wasn't attracted to women. And then there's the possibility that this was one way to wrest power back from Godwin. If Edward didn't want to marry Edith, but he didn't have the political power to avoid the marriage, there was still one place that Edward could hold power in the relationship. In the marriage bed. The court, as well as Godwin, could do a lot. But they couldn't compel Edward to give the man who killed his brother a grandson and a future on the royal line. This freeze-out might have been political. But the fact is, there are all kinds of reasons why he might not have wanted to have a child with Edith. But one thing is clear. They weren't going to have any. So while Earl Godwin had managed to rise up from being the son of a pirate and was now the father of the Queen of England, what he probably didn't know was that he was never going to be the grandfather of a future King of England. And this was also going to be the end of the Anglo-Saxon era. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on social media, and we have links to all our communities in the community section of the thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>